Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salber, and I'm doing my inaugural podcast for the American Journal of Managed Care. And my guest today is Dr. James Chambers, who's an assistant professor at the Center for Evaluation of Value and Risk in Health. That's quite a mouthful. And that's at Tufts. And he's the author of a really interesting paper that looks at the impact of formulary drug exclusion policies on patients and on healthcare costs. And this paper appears in the August issue of the American Journal of Managed Care. So uh, welcome, Dr. Chambers. Hi, Pat. Thanks for having me. So I was hoping we could start by having you tell us just a little bit about your background. How did you get interested in topics like this that are related to managed care? Yeah, well, um, originally I, I'm a, I studied pharmacy at Queen's University in Belfast, and um, after that I went on and studied health economics, and it was through my health economics training that I became very interested in drug coverage policy, and maybe most importantly, how can drug coverage policy lead to a more efficient healthcare system? Um, and since joining Tufts Medical Center, I've studied a lot of coverage policies as, as part of my research, and I've looked most often at Medicare national coverage determinations, and more recently, I've begun to focus my, my, my research on private payer coverage policy and, and, and PBM coverage decisions. Well, it's certainly an important topic as pharmacy is making up larger and larger uh, percent of our total healthcare spend. So I think it would be helpful for our listeners if you could explain exactly what formulary drug exclusion policies are and, and, and why we should care about them. Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. So a drug exclusion policy would supplement other formulary management tools like like prior authorizations or tiered formularies. And essentially the goal of a drug exclusion policy, as the name would suggest, is to exclude a drug for which there are alternatives that are equally effective but are less expensive. So just to repeat that, so it's really to exclude a drug for which there are equally effective alternatives that, that cost less. And by switching patients from the more expensive drug to the cheaper drug will result in cost savings and efficiency gains, but shouldn't affect the patient. So the patient should be unaffected by that by that drug switch. Now, it, and just to emphasize, this is different from generic substitution. So this is switching from one drug to an entirely different drug, not just from a brand to, to a generic. And these are important for a number of reasons. One is that PBMs and payers are increasingly using these drug exclusion policies as formulary management tools. But maybe most importantly, for me at least, these, these policies have the potential to cause significant disruption to patients because patients are required to stop taking one drug and switch to another drug. And that's, you know, the number of red flags associated with it. And, um, you know, I think there's a potential there to for, for patients to be adversely affected by these policies. And so just to be clear, what you're saying is if a drug ends up on the excluded list, the only way a patient could have access to that drug is if they pay for it out of their own pocket. Uh, pretty much so, yes. I mean, I'm sure that with, uh, with, with appeals in place, they could appeal the the decision, but largely so, yes, that would be the case. So what what exactly did you do in, in this study when you were looking at these policies, and what was it that you hoped to learn? 
Well, we recognise that the de-drug exclusion policy is a powerful form of management tools. I mean, and if they behave as intended, so so when patients do switch the drug, that they're not affected by that drug switch, and also that costs are genu genuinely reduced, then they have great potential for reducing drug costs and for increasing the, the efficiency of healthcare. Um, but we find that, well, we didn't find any literature that had really thoroughly examined these policies, even though we, we, were, we, we were aware of various empirical studies out there that evaluated these individual policies. So we wanted to examine the success of these policies as a whole. So we, um, we sought to review the literature and identify all of these empirical studies and really try to tease out have they been successful in their goals. How many studies did you end up finding that were relevant? How many did you review and, and include in your study? Yeah, good question. So, so, so we performed this large, thorough literature review. So we systematically searched the literature um, for empirical studies of individual drug exclusion policies. Um, and we identified a number of studies and evaluated them um, in various ways. And I should say two researchers, myself and Dr. Plavi Rian, reviewed each study and we had consensus meeting to make sure that we had interpreted the studies correctly. We found 26 individual studies and they, there was one study there that evaluated two drug exclusion policies. So we had 27 um, individual drug exclusion policies that we evaluated as part of this research. And in terms of the diseases that were um, examined here, we had drugs for hypertension, um, gastroesophageal reflux disease, diabetes, glaucoma, psychotic disorders, and there are others in there as well. Okay, so a nice spectrum. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty nice spectrum. Um, a lot of them were your pharmacy drugs, of course, so very few of any specialty drugs in there, but it was a nice spectrum of, um, of drugs for different indications, yeah. So what were your key findings? And, and as you give us your key findings, it would be very helpful if you could give us examples of drugs that were excluded and what they were substituted with, if you know, and, and, and some examples of the impact that that had both on patients and on costs. Okay. Well, first of all, we considered the impact of the policies on patients, and we found that 21 um, drug exclusion policies were evaluated in a way that allowed us to determine the impact of that policy on patients. We found that of those 21, six policies actually had a positive impact on patients. So patient symptoms improved following the drug switch. Another six policies, however, had a negative impact. So patient symptoms or the disease control was negatively impacted. And we found another nine where the patients were, were not impacted in any way. So um, the symptoms and the, the disease control was wasn't um, improved or um, affected in a negative way. And in terms of some of the drugs that we examined here, we have, for example, in hyperlipidemia, in one study that um, switched patients from simvastatin to lovastatin, another study in lipidemia switched patients from pravastatin to, to lovastatin. Um, one interesting example was a study um, that switched patients from risperidone to alternative um, antipsychotic drugs. And we found in that study, that there was actually an increase in acute care events following the drug switch. So, so quite a significant impact on patients, on patients there. So, um, so the people so had a deterioration of, of, their, of their disorder. Absolutely. absolutely. So it was an acute care event as a result from um, increased symptoms and, um, like I said, decrease in, in disease control. 
So just to summarize those, I mean, we found that in the majority of, of instances, and I think that's a key finding, that in the majority of these studies, um, we found the patients were either unaffected or there's actually a positive impact on the patients. But almost one in four did have a negative impact, um, which was quite a significant finding to us. And uh, really, you know, it was, it was something that, that we uh, thought a lot about as, as we examined these, these studies. I'm, I'm going to want to come back to those negative findings in a bit, but um, okay. I, I was hoping you would also tell us about any impacts on cost that you found. Yes, absolutely. So this is the second part of, uh, of, of our approach to, to examine these studies. And we found that 19 um, drug exclusion policies, the, the economics of those policies were examined. So we, we, we had evidence of whether the policy increased costs or actually reduced costs. We found, unsurprisingly, I suppose, because they are, you know, these policies do, the aim of these policies is to reduce costs. We found that the vast majority, so almost three quarters of the studies, did report that the costs were reduced. We did find, however, that one study um, found that costs were not reduced, and four study, in four studies, we found that costs were actually increased as a result of this drug exclusion policy. Um, that study was um, for PPIs, and in, 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 in this study, it was very interesting because while we found that the drug costs were, were reduced, we found that because patients were visiting the, the, the physician more often and were using healthcare resources more often, that overall healthcare costs increased as a result of that policy. And was there any uniformity in terms of how the costs were reported? Because this is always so problematic in studies where you try and look at healthcare costs. Um, were the methodologies similar? Did they include the cost, for example, of administering the program? A lot of times that gets left out. People say, oh, we save, you know, $3 million, but geez, we spent $4 million to save the $3 million. Can you tell us anything about the healthcare cost reporting methodology? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very, very good question. I mean, a, a limitation of our study, as we highlight in the paper, is that many of these studies use slightly different methods. And because of that, you know, we, we should interpret these results with, with some degree of caution, I would suggest. We found that some uh, studies reported the costs with more granularity than others. And in fact, only one study reported the, the cost of implementing the program, which, which like I say, is a, is a limitation of the study. We did find, however, that the vast majority of studies reported both the impact on drug costs and on other healthcare resources. So we could, with some degree of confidence, know whether the cost savings from the drug exclusion policy or, or reduction in the drug costs were, were offset or more than offset by increase in costs elsewhere in the system. So I kind of want to dive into some of these findings now because it's really fascinating. And I think the first one I want to ask you about is you said that there were a subset of patients who actually got better when they were switched from one supposedly equivalent drug to another. Um, do you have any thoughts on why that might be? Well, it could, it could be that the drug that the patients were switched to were actually a more effective drug than the, than the drug that was excluded. It could also be maybe that there's some degree of heterogeneity of treatment effects with these drugs, and that even though the evidence would suggest the drugs were equivalent, because of the patients that were switched, it could be that for those patients it actually increased, um, it, uh, you know, it improved their disease in some way or the disease management in some way. 
Alternatively, it could be that patients through their interactions with the physicians as part of the drug exclusion policy became more adherent to the therapy. So it's not so much that the drug is more effective, but more that the patient's behavior is more consistent with the physician's prescribing and therefore their condition was improved as a result. Unfortunately, it's quite difficult to tease out these things from the studies that we reviewed, but I think that those could be some reasons why we had those findings. And and I guess you would say that that's probably somewhat similar to that one in four who had uh, adverse events. Um, let's take the, the you know the the risperidone example. So switch from one antipsychotic to another, and a pretty remarkable um, deterioration because it it ended up causing increased consumption of of healthcare services. Um, so what's the message from that, both uh, to our listeners, but more importantly to managed care companies who are, who are making these decisions or, or their PBMs who are making these decisions? I mean, uh, yeah, the real policy implications of the study. Well, I think that obviously any experiment should be reproduced. So, I mean, to really re- reproduce these findings, you know, in separate studies really confirm whether you know, these drug exclusion policies are having a negative impact. I think that what what this study tells me is that, or what we learned from this study is that these drug exclusion policies do have great potential. I mean, I think that if we can implement these policies in a way that patients are truly unaffected by the drug switch and the costs are reduced, a very powerful tool for reducing healthcare costs and, and, and uh, increasing efficiency. But that given that we found quite a substantial number of instances where patients were, ne- were negatively impacted and costs were increased, that you know payers and PBMs should take great care when implementing these policies, and 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 that when they do, they they really base these policies on the on the really a robust evidence base, and if possible, make these decisions as transparently as possible, so that physicians and patients can see you know, what evidence was used whenever they were judging this decision. Maybe most importantly is that patients should be closely monitored as time goes on if they are affected by the drug switch. Now, of course, you'll maybe suggest to me, well, that will will increase costs further, and that would likely be the case. But I do think that is a very key step in this, and that, you know, patients who are affected by these drug exclusion policies should be closely monitored monitored to ensure that, um, you know, the policy hasn't had an adverse impact on them. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I I think it's very interesting because whenever we talk about these kinds of um, activities that are initiated either by the PBM or by the health plan, it's never really clear who gets the savings, right? Is it, uh, you know, is it the PBM? I mean, we know that there are instances where the PBMs get the savings and they aren't passed on to the health plan. We know there's instances where the health plan gets the savings and they aren't passed on to the patients. So anything that has an adverse clinical outcome, I think needs to be put into that context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, you know, I think it's a dangerous um, approach to focus simply on drug costs. And, you know, a key lesson from this paper is that, you know, while you may reduce drug costs, there's a good chance the costs will be offset to somewhere else in the healthcare system. And if we truly are taking a holistic approach to trying to improve the efficiency of healthcare, then we must look at both um, the medical and the pharmacy benefit 
together. And by, and by focusing simply or solely on, on drug costs may actually have an adverse effect on overall healthcare costs. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. And although it wasn't in your paper, I, I, I do think that uh, I would like our, our listeners to think about that because many health plans manage their pharmacy benefit. They outsource it essentially to a PBM. And you talked about transparency. I think with the uh, way that the contracts are structured between managed care plans and PBMs and, you know, the role of um, kind of the discounts that uh, people get as a, re- as a result of those relationships makes it so complex that, you know, the average chief medical officer doesn't really, uh, the health plan doesn't really even understand exactly how the money's, uh, how the money is flowing. Um, and so if these, if these policies are being done and the patient is, is not benefiting from it, it's something we should all be um, concerned about. Um, so I, I wanted to close by um, asking you what you think you're going to look at next. We do know that almost every time there's a research study that's done, the authors close by saying, further research needs to be done. Um, where do you think you're going to go now that you've uh, uncovered these really interesting findings? Where, where do you think you're going to look next with respect to drug pricing policies? Yeah, well, we've become, I mean, I'm very interested in how these decisions are made. And in fact, um, a plug for a study that will be published in the American Journal of Managed Care in September issue, we've reviewed the large review of all payer coverage policies for drugs and other types of technologies. Now, it's a very shallow review, but it's, it's part of what we're trying to do to better understand um, how payers are covering medical technology. Some of the work that we've done is identified variations between pairs. So some pairs may cover a drug, other pairs may not. And even two pairs that cover the drug may do so in different ways. So one may cover for a patient subgroup and the other pair may cover more broadly. And, you know, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do at Tufts is trying to really sort of quantify the variation in payer coverage policy and also trying to better understand how these decisions are being made. So how are payers using evidence and what evidence are they reviewing when arriving at these coverage policies? And I think this work, what I hope it does is it does it makes coverage policies more transparent to patients, physicians, industry and others, and hopefully makes the whole coverage of pharmaceuticals a more transparent and efficient um, process. Well, that sounds really interesting. And uh, one of the questions that it, it um, brings up to me is, so you're going to have this survey of all this, all the different ways that plans are handling these drugs. Um, do you think, is this paper going to in any way point out what are best practices, or is it really more of, of, a, of a survey? Is there, is there a way to help, plan, help plans who maybe aren't doing it in a way that's really evidence-based can learn from your paper how they could do a better job? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, first of all, what we're trying to do is document the variation and then trying to understand exactly what's going on. And I think that once we've managed to really document and understand, as I don't think we as a community do yet, just, you know, just the the landscape of coverage policy. I mean, once we understand that, then I think we can start um, trying to improve it. So trying to understand why are the variations there? You know, are any of these variations inappropriate? Because it may well be that payers arrive at different decisions for quite legitimate reasons. And what we're trying to do is really trying to tease out 
you know, the, just how evidence-based are these decisions and um, how closely related to the strength of the evidence are, are the coverage policies. Well, fascinating work that you're doing. I was wondering if you had any, any final points that you wanted to share with our listeners? Well, I think just to go back to the study that we've been talking about mostly today, I think a lesson for me from the study was that while we can have the best intentions with, with various formula management tools, and I do think payers do have the best intentions here. You know, I do really believe that they're trying to reduce costs while leaving patients unaffected by the drug switch. The, you know, it can be the case that there are some un, unpredicted consequences. You know, I think that a real step forward would be, as I say, to you know, risk of repeat myself. That decisions should be transparent and should be based on you know an upfront review and transparent review of the clinical and the economic evidence. And as long as that is done and it, and it is transparent, then while these policies may not always be perfectly successful, you know at least we'll know why the decision was made and hopefully improve decision making as, as we move forward. Well, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I look forward to reading your paper next month, and uh, maybe we'll be able to have you come back and chat about that one as well. So thank you very much, Dr. Chambers, and uh, good luck with your future research. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you.